Thank you, guys. Well, we begin a new series today, um, and it is uh, on the letter of John, 1 John. Um, this is John, who is the first cousin of Jesus. Um, he wrote the books of, or the letters of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. He also wrote the Gospel of John, and he's responsible for the book of Revelation. So his uh, fingerprints are all over uh, the New Testament, and so that's where we're heading um, over the course of the next several weeks. John is the youngest of the 12 disciples that Jesus called. He was the only of the 12 disciples of Jesus that actually died of natural causes. All the other disciples uh, were either crucified upside down like Peter, they had their heads chopped off, or they were burned at the stake. John was the only one who, survived, who died of natural causes. Um, and the date for this letter, um, actually all three of John's letters, some say that it occurred toward the end of his life around 90 AD when John was a very old man in prison on the island of Patmos. Other folks would say, you know what, there's no evidence in these letters that talks about the fall or the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, which was the cataclysmic event if you were a Jewish person and John doesn't even mention it. And so therefore some people would date these letters before 70 AD. That can be argued back and forth. Um, but the question I want to ask this morning, I just want to give you a little bit of introduction to John and then also begin to look at some of the teachings, some of the doctrines that John shares with us here in this text. So let me give you just a few words of introduction, then we'll get to our text for today. Um, first of all, why is John writing this letter? Well, the chief reason why John is writing to the churches, to the Christian churches here, is because of a heresy that has cropped up, and it's rooted in what's called docetism. Docetism comes from the um, Greek term dokeo, and dokeo means to seem or to appear to be. And so what the docetists taught, otherwise other, they're also known as Gnostics, what the docetists taught is that all matter, all physical material was evil, was inherently bad. And so therefore, if all matter is inherently bad, then Jesus could never have come and dwelt in human flesh. He never could have become flesh and blood material because how can a holy God become something that is evil, become material stuff? And so that's what the docetists believed. And so armed with that fundamental belief that all material things are bad, they just could not accept the idea of God incarnate, that is of Jesus inhabiting human flesh. The word incarnate comes from the Latin term, uh, means, and the Latin term comes from the Latin term incarnate, which means uh, in the flesh, and that's where we get that term incarnation from. So what they said was that it was that Jesus only seemed to be in human flesh, that he only appeared to be flesh and blood, but that he actually wasn't flesh and blood. It was just like a hologram that was just walking around here on the earth that people were interacting with. And so John enters into that teaching and says, hold on, time out, I've got a different uh, understanding of Jesus here on the earth. And so that's what he shares in the opening lines of his letter. I can't make a big enough point about that. This is the opening lines of the letter that we're about ready to read. Anytime somebody at the beginning of their letter makes a point, it's usually that, that point's going to carry through the rest of the letter. And so that's what we see here with these opening uh, points that John's making. So let's stand together for the reading of God's word. We're going to read 1 John chapter 1 and the first three verses, okay? The opening words that John wants to share with his congregation here. Here we go. First John chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. 
We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Okay, you may be seated. Again, these are the opening lines of the letter. Paul's try, or Paul John's trying to make a big point here of making a doctrinal teaching uh, on this idea that Jesus did come in the flesh. So let's just kind of walk through these verses together to see what it is that John's trying, the point he's trying to make. Um, John says basically that all matter is not bad, and the reason why is because Jesus came in the flesh. Verse 1, he says, that which was from the beginning, talking about Jesus Christ, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and most importantly, which we actually touched, we actually touched, shook hands with, hugged, uh, walked alongside of, rubbed shoulders with the Lord Jesus. We touched his fleshly body. John says, hold on a minute to this whole docetous idea that he only seemed to appear in the flesh, that he was only some sort of apparition or some ghost that was walking around. No, no, he was no hologram. You couldn't just wipe your hand through him. We actually touched the Lord Jesus. And then John repeats himself in verse 2 to make a point, right? He says, uh, the life Jesus appeared, we have seen it. Right? We have seen it, we testify to it, we have and then we proclaim um, to you the eternal life which was with the Father, uh, God in heaven, and that has appeared to us. Do you see how John is drawing on the five senses here? We see sight, we, we've heard him, we've actually touched him, we've smelled him, we, we, we've, and we've encountered Jesus with our five senses. This is all material, tactile kind of responses. Um, now when the biblical authors repeat themselves like this, so from verse 1 he says the thing, and then he says the same thing, makes the same point again in verse 2. When biblical authors repeat themselves like this, what are they trying to do? Trying to make a point, that's right. And so he uses repetition. It's a Hebrew literary device. John, being a Jewish person, would have understood literary, the Hebrew literary device of repetition for the poor purpose of making a point. And so to drive his point home even further, he says the same thing again in verse 3. So let's look at verse 3 together. He says there um, in verse 3, We proclaim to you what we have seen, right, and what we have heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. You say, okay, Gordon, I got it. John's trying to make a point. And his point is that Jesus really did come in the flesh. He's trying to deal with this whole docetism idea. But my question to you is, what's the big deal? Like, why is John, right at the outset of this letter, so hung up on and trying to drive home this point that he mentions it three different times in three verses that Jesus really did appear in the flesh? What's the big deal about Jesus having appeared in human flesh? Well, that's a good question. Let's see if we can um, answer that. The first reason that it's so important, theologically speaking, why Jesus became flesh and blood has to deal with his death on the cross. Friends, when Jesus died on the cross, the sins of the ages entered into his physical body. The Lord Jesus was filled with the, your sins and my sins, past, present, and future, and they were heaped on his physical body, and into his physical body were transferred all of our sins. And then that body was killed, that body was put to death, that body became a substitute for the death that our physical bodies deserved, right? The death, the punishment that was due us, the Lord Jesus received upon his own physical body. And this is what the author of Hebrews is talking about when he writes, Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared, that's the Lord Jesus, he also shared in their humanity. Skip forward to verse 16, for surely it is not angels that he helps, 
but it's Abraham's descendants. It's human beings that the Lord Jesus came for. In other words, the Lord Jesus didn't appear as an angel because he wasn't trying to save angels, right? He appeared as a human being. He, came, he became like us so that he could save us, um, and that was his point. He became flesh and blood so that he could die for people. And it was into that human flesh, his human body, that our sins were cast. And that body was sacrificed as a substitute on our behalf. All right, so that's the first big deal, and that's a pretty big deal, that the Lord Jesus had to have a human fleshly body just like our bodies so that it could be our sin substitute. A second reason, big theological reason, as to why Jesus had to come in a human, real human body flesh and blood, is because of the resurrection that Jesus foretold of our own physical bodies. If you remember, this has been some weeks back ago, if you were here on that Sunday morning, I stood up here and shared with you from Revelation chapter 20, and in Revelation chapter 20, is captured that return of Christ, when Christ comes back to the earth, and all the peoples of the earth are swept up, that are, that you know, graves are popping open, and the dead are raised, like their physical bodies are raised. They meet their souls in the sky, like Jesus is going to return, and the souls of heaven that have gone on, that have died and gone on before us, will return, and their physical bodies will be, uh, will be merged back again with their souls, back with their person, and then, then the rest of us who are still here on the earth, alive at the time, will be swept up as well, and we'll receive glorified physical bodies just like the Lord Jesus received. The writer of uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 talks about this very event. He writes, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning at verse 51, he said, listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. We will all be changed. And your body's not just going to lay there in the grave. It's going to be changed. You will receive a new resurrection body, he says. Verse 52, in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable. So your physical body is going to be raised without cancer. Your physical body is going to be raised without heart disease. Your physical body is going to be raised in such a way that it will never have any sort of problems anymore. You'll never stub your toe, thank goodness, praise the Lord, right? And, you, and, and all those sorts of things. <clears throat> never have a cold, none of that sort of th stuff. It will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. Verse 53, for the perishable, our bodies right now that suffer death and decay and disease must clothe itself with imperishability like Jesus' resurrected body, right? Jesus' physical body could be killed. It was a body that would perish, and it did perish, but then it was resurrected imperishable just like our physical bodies will be resurrected imperishable. So again, if the Lord Jesus came to the earth, he didn't come in real flesh and blood. He was just some sort of apparition walking around here in the earth. It only seemed like, right, the docetist view, it only seemed like he was here in the flesh. Then, friends, there's really no hope of resurrected bodies that the Bible consistently teaches about, right? But the Lord Jesus did come in flesh and blood. His body was physically resurrected, and he continues in that state even to this day, and he will continue in that state into eternity. Both the Lord Jesus as the second person of the Trinity, but in human flesh with that human nature. A third reason why it's so important that Jesus actually became flesh First is because of the substitutionary atonement that his physical body received our sins in it and he became that sin sacrifice. Secondly, so that it could be resurrected just like our physical bodies will one day be resurrected. And third and finally is that Jesus became flesh and blood and it has to do with his ability to empathize with our frailty, to empathize with our human condition. 
because Jesus had real flesh and blood, he knows about human weakness. He knows what it is to be hungry. He knows what it is to be thirsty. He knows what it is to be, uh, to be tired. He knows what it is to feel frail and to feel insecure and to feel vulnerable in our physical bodies. The Lord Jesus knows about appetites and desires. The writer of Hebrews picks up on this when he says, verse four, chapter 4 and verse 15, he says, For we do not have a high priest, that is Jesus, who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way that we have been tempted, just as we are. And then he says, verse 16, Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Friend, there is nothing that God does not know. God understands human weakness. God knows about those things. And part of that is that God has experienced those things. Now, not only does he, it's not like he just knows it in his head, but he's felt it. It's kind of like the difference between, <clears throat> you know, my wife gave birth to our three children. I will never have that experience. Praise the Lord, right? I, I, can, I, can, I can be there in the, in the room when the babies are being delivered. I can walk through her for those nine months as we're waiting on those children to come. I can hear her talk about how, what she experiences. I can see her belly move and all that sort of stuff. But I will never know what that experience is really like. But the Lord Jesus, just like a woman who has gone through childbirth, he really knows what it's like to be human because he walked in our shoes. He was real flesh and blood just like we are. And so because of that, we have a high priest who can empathize with us. Um, okay. Hey, that's some good preaching this morning, right? Okay. Well, that's, uh, that's as far as you want to go with this text for today. That's just kind of an introductory to where John's going. And again, these themes will run through the whole letter of 1 John. I think it'll be a blessing to your life, but that's kind of our theological teaching for today. And so that means it's time for us to ask our most important question. It's a question we ask every week around here. What difference does any of this make to my life, right? You say, Gordon, I mean, I appreciate it. Doctrine of the Incarnation. Really wasn't sure I even wanted to get up and come to church this morning when I saw what the title was going to be. But I mean, I agree that Jesus was real flesh and blood. I'm not here to refute that this morning. So what difference, what's this got to do with my life? Well, that's a really great question. Let's see if we can answer that. There's one more big deal that Jesus coming in the flesh makes to your life and to mine. And John drives that point home in another book that he wrote in the Gospel of John, John chapter 1 and verse 14. Again, at the opening lines of his Gospel, we're only 14 verses deep into his Gospel of 22 chapters. Only 14 verses deep, and he says these words. He says that the Word, that is Jesus, became flesh. He's, it's not docetism, right? He became flesh. And he dwelt where? Among us. He dwelt among us. Now, there's a beautiful word picture here that comes to us from Jewish roots, from their Hebrew roots. Um, and it's the idea of the tabernacle. I have a picture here for you of the tabernacle. Now, this was that thing that God told Moses to construct. And the tabernacle sits inside of the courtyard that's formed by the curtains on the outer uh, part of the, of, the, of the structure there. And so you got the outside part, and then you got the inside part. The inside part that's covered is the actual tabernacle itself. There's two rooms inside of this tabernacle. You have the holy place, which is the front room, which is where all the priests would come and make some different uh, offerings and things like that for the people and come and, and petition the Lord for prayers. But then there was a room behind that that was sealed behind a curtain, and it was called the Holy of Holies. And inside of the Holy of Holies was the 
the, the Ark of the Covenant, right? And then God's presence would come, and it would rest on top of this Ark of the Covenant. And God gave Moses very specific instructions about how to construct this tabernacle, about how to construct all the different furnishings, the dimensions of all of it. And all these things would be symbols uh, or, or, or uh, um, copies, rather, of the heavenly stuff that was, was up there in heaven. And so God was going to come down here on earth, and he was going to tabernacle. And that word tabernacle is a Hebrew term. It's a verb. And God was making the point, driving the point home, that I'm going to come and dwell in the midst of you. He didn't call the place where he was going to be a noun. He called the place where he was going to be a verb to drive home the point that I'm going to be right there. I'm going to dwell. It's the dwelling place. I'm tabernacling in the midst of you. And so that's where God comes. He comes to tabernacle in the midst of our people. Now, John picks up on that same word picture here in John chapter 1 and verse 14 when he says, and the word Jesus tabernacled, it's the Greek word skenu, dwelt, same word translated, dwelt among us. Jesus tabernacled in our Midst. That is that God plopped down the tabernacle in the middle of his people, Israel, told them to, when they got done walking, then build this tabernacle, construct it back up. This was a mobile unit, right? And then put your tents all around this tabernacle. Don't go off to some mountain's top where you can't reach me. Don't stick this thing someplace where I'm not. But rather, I want to be right in the middle of all of you. I want to be right in the middle of all of my people. And then y'all camp around it. And so Jesus, just the same, dwelt or tabernacled in the midst of us. And that's what John's saying here, John chapter 1 and verse 14. That is, God wanted to be up close to all the murmuring. God wanted to be up close to all the complaining. God wanted to be up close to all the weaknesses. God wanted to be up close to the elderly. God wanted to be up close to the disabled. What's the point God's trying to make here? He wants to be up close with us. He wants to dwell right in the midst of us. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus didn't say, hey, okay, God the Father, I'm going to go down there, I'm going to die on that cross, but I don't want to get near these people. That's not what he said. He said, I want to go down there and I want to dwell right in the midst of them. I want to rub shoulders with them. I want to be involved in their lives. And the Lord Jesus did this because he wants to be close with you and close with me. He dwelt among us. Friends, when we need help, when we're facing pain and heartache and struggles, we don't want to go to some palace where there's a royal king up there that we can't approach and we got to get on hands and knees and just kind of wonder if maybe he'll let us into his presence. He wants, we want somebody, a savior, who says, come to me. All of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We want a Savior who will pitch his tent right in there with us, who will love us and comfort us and help us and care about us. And this is exactly what the Lord Jesus did. Matthew chapter 1 and verse 23 confirms this. It says the virgin, this is Gabriel talking to Joseph right after Joseph finds out that Mary's pregnant uh, with the baby Jesus. And, the, and Joseph says the virgin will be with child. She will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. God with us. Right in there in the midst of us. With us in heart. With us in in struggle, with us in our soul, with us in sympathy, 
with us in the hospital room, with us in the midst of financial difficulty, with us in the midst of sickness, with us when we have a child who is wayward and running away from the Lord, with us when we're hurting, with us when we're confused, with us when we don't know what decision to make, God, Emmanuel, with us. That's who Jesus is. Friends, this is why Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 7, cast all your cares on him. Why? Because he cares for you. Not some cold, distant king, but a savior who is with us. Now let me say in closing this morning that maybe you have a heavy heart. Maybe you've lost a loved one recently. Maybe you're facing some difficult health decisions. Maybe you're going through some difficult times. Maybe you have a son or daughter who's not walking with the Lord. Listen, there are heavy hearts in every row up and down these aisles this morning. And so here at the outset of this letter, Paul drives home the point that Jesus came and dwelt in the midst of us. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. He cares for you. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 1, that which was from the beginning, we heard him, we saw him, we looked upon him, we touched him with our hands. Let's pray. Most gracious Lord, we thank you for the truth of your word this morning, which reminds us of how deeply you pursue us, how deeply you want to be involved in our lives. You said you would never leave us. You would never forsake us. And you demonstrated that in your coming here to this earth. Lord, we pray this morning as we share these symbols of your broken body and of your shed blood, that we would allow the truth of your word to penetrate our hearts and our mind this morning. Perhaps we've been being lied to from fear. God, may we allow your truth to wash over us in such a powerful way that it drives out fear, that it drives out doubt. You are with us. We pray these things in Christ's holy name.